Hello and welcome in to the Floor Slap Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Sean. Want to kick things off by reminding everyone listening to you know tell your family members and your friends that you love them, how much you appreciate them. Uh, don't be afraid to go take that leap, whether you're you know thinking about taking a new job or quitting your current one, going on that trip, or talking to that person you have a crush on. Because everything good in life comes to an end, and you do not want to be left with any regrets. And I think college football is always the greatest reminder of how fleeting some great things are because here we stand um, towards the end of November right before Thanksgiving and we are gearing up for the last week of the regular season not just of college football but really as college football as we know it because next year the entire landscape is going to be different the expanded playoff no more divisions in the Big Ten a lot of great rivalries like Oregon Oregon State which is coming up this weekend a lot of great rivalries will be no more Um, and it's just going to be a completely different sport almost so appreciate what we have now and I hope you guys enjoyed the college football season as much as I did. But, you know, the time, life goes on whether or not, whether or not we'd like to. So we got to gear up for the last week of the regular season here. And we got a stacked episode, as always, on this week's Floor Slap podcast. I'm going to start off, you know, with some um, headlines around the Big Ten. Really just what was accomplished by some teams this past weekend and what they can, um, what other teams have to accomplish this upcoming season i mean this upcoming weekend because even though ohio state michigan is stealing all the headlines there are some notable games that we will talk about as well going to get into some college football playoff talk the picture becomes clearer and clearer every week but at the same time even more muddied and there is a lot of different scenarios that could happen really it looks like we're gearing up for maybe the best uh, college football race college football playoff race that we've seen in the cfp era um, and then we'll get into the ohio state michigan preview have a lot to talk about with this game so um, that's going to take up a good chunk of this episode. Then we'll finish up previewing week 13 and my five Big Ten betting locks, which has been hitting pretty well this season. If you've been following along, you've been hitting about 60% of your bets, which I would take as a win. But anyway, like I said, stacked episode ahead of ourselves. Won't waste any more time and going to jump right into it. This is the Floor Slap Podcast. We're going to kick things off this week talking about a few notable accomplishments that we saw in the Big Ten this past weekend. Uh, the first one, and probably the biggest one, was Iowa clinching the Big Ten West. Um, you know, it seemed like majority of the season Iowa did kind of have this division on lock, but a lot of people, including myself, was waiting for that, you know, big upset to happen that were really just the Big Ten West to start cannibalizing themselves like they seem to always do, waiting for that one signature upset that really just allows every team uh, to get into the thick of the race. And I was expecting a pretty crazy final week in the Big Ten West where there's a lot of different scenarios where as many as four teams could realistically get into that Big Ten championship. But credit to Iowa, they did not let that happen. And I really have to tip my tip my cap to Kirk Ferentz and that whole Iowa program because um, I, I really think that they've overcome more than any other team in college football and that includes Michigan you know with the scandal that's going on there they've remained relatively healthy I mean, we'll get into what's going on with their team later and how they stack up against Ohio State but Iowa has really gone through it this year um, I mean they've gotten a lot of heat by the media both inside and outside the Big Ten you know for myself included I was not kind uh, about that um, their coaching staff and what they've been doing on the offensive side of the ball in the offseason and you know at the end of the day 
this Iowa team, like I said, has come over more than any other team in college football. They had to go through injuries to Cooper DeGene, best player on their team. Uh, Cade McNamara, transfer quarterback, who was supposed to be the reason this team really turned it around and became possibly a legitimate college football playoff contender. Um, Luke Lachey and Eric All, two all-Big Ten caliber tight ends, potential NFL players, um, lost for the season. Um, their senior defensive tackle, Noah Shannon, supposed to really be the anchor in that defensive line. He was suspended for the season due to gambling. Um, you know, those those gambling issues that went on a few months ago um offensive line has been riddled with injuries they're they're healing up now but that has not been a position of strength for them um and then you couple all those injuries that they've had to go through with just the talk that's been around this offense all all the way going back to last year um and it's really the performance of this audience uh, offense has been really the only thing that the coaching staff and the players have been asked about after games, even after they win, they have just been berated about, you know, when are you going to be able to start scoring points and that, you know, 24, 25 points per game merit, um, that Brian Ferentz was supposed to hit clear early on. He wasn't going to, and the media would not let him forget about it. I mean, it really got so bad. Brian Ferentz, um, he was forced to announce his resignation in the middle of the season. Um, so, I mean, he's obviously sticking around with the team until the end of the year, but, you know, that was a headline. Really, Brian Ferentz got kit run out of town before the season even ended because of the narrative around this offense and the narrative around this team. And so I'm not making excuses for that side of the ball. Their offense has been really, really bad, but off Iowa's ability to overcome all of that and be a win away from a 10-2 and season, possible New York 6 bowl berth, um, is really incredible and a testament to the culture that Kirk Ferentz has cemented there. Iowa football, I mean, you just have to accept it. It's never going to be pretty. You're never going to watch them and be enamored with what they're doing on the offensive side of the ball. You're ne- never going to see them in 30, 40 point shootouts. Uh, but at the end of the day, they are winners. And, you know, they are built to remain relevant in this new era of college football that we are entering. And as much heat as Kirk Ferentz has gotten, and even though a lot of it has been warranted with the way that they just have not developed anything on the offensive side of the ball, I mean, he has Iowa firmly as one of the five best programs in the Big Ten. I think you, you can include them in that top five, even heading in um, to this new era of the Big Ten with four new teams coming in. I mean, Iowa is as solid as a program as there is in college football. They are ready to remain Big Ten contenders in this new era, and you just got to tip 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 your cap to them for what they've accomplished this season big 10 west champions for the second time in three years and uh, can't say enough good things about really how this whole team has stuck together through uh, a roller coaster of a season so congratulations to iowa for reaching indianapolis it'll be interesting this weekend to see if they can get that 10th win over their rival nebraska but we will talk about that a little bit later and second, what we saw last weekend was Northwestern and Wisconsin both becoming bowl eligible. Uh, Northwestern, definitely the most notable of the two. Uh, I don't think anyone saw that coming heading into the season, given what they had to overcome in the offseason with Pat Fitzgerald being kind of unceremoniously let go with that whole um, saga that went on. Won't even get into that, but you know... The national media, I don't think, is giving David Braun and this Northwestern team enough love. They're not giving them the flowers that they deserve because, yeah, I've been talking about how much I love David Braun going back to Big Ten media days, how he just handled an impossible situation with grace, you know, stood in there and answered the questions that really the administration and the president of the university should have been answered. They really just threw David Braun into the fire and he handled it perfectly and he ended up winning over this locker room and has taken a team that no one picked, um, no one, including myself, picked to win more than three games this season 
season. Um, and he has them bowl eligible with a game still remaining. And I think their lack of talent, which I've kind of talked about this season compared to the other teams in the West, has probably been overstated even by myself. But it's been clear in a lot in a lot of their, their games, even their wins, just how overmatched they are in the trenches. Um, and that makes it really hard to win at the end of the day. But especially when you consider their combination of Ben Bryant and Brandon Sullivan aren't necessarily lighting up scoreboards. You know, they've definitely been better than the quarterback play Northwestern has gotten the past couple years, but, um, you know, they still haven't been, I guess, anything special to put it plainly. It's really been grit, toughness, and I think just sheer will that has gotten Northwestern a lot of the wins that they have. And that all starts in the summer and it all starts in practice and it all begins and ends with David Braun. So uh, again, I just have to give give up my applause for him because it, it's going to be a, a tough decision between him uh, and Kirk Ferentz for coach of the year. I think they're both really deserving and I'm honestly leaning towards David Braun just because I think he's done more with less, even though I talked about all the things that Iowa had to overcome from an injury standpoint. Um, I, I really just have been so impressed with how this Northwestern team has played and it's really just almost unfathomable to me that Northwestern lost the greatest coach, their greatest player, and really the greatest figure that this Northwestern football program has seen in its entire history. Um, lost him in what seemed like a blink of an eye. Seemed like one one week he was talking about gearing up for this season, and the next he was just gone from the university. Um, and now, despite that, they somehow stumbled into a coach who it really seems more than capable of salvaging this program and leading them into this new era of college football. I mean, he has a love of this university, which he illustrated in the offseason he has a respect for this conference the players and recruits and players they all love i mean parents all love him and i think really his underdog story to get to where he is right now leading a division one power five football team aligns perfectly with that northwestern program um, i'm excited for him i'm excited for this university you know northwestern is who you know we know they are they're never going to be a perennial 10 win team but i think if david braun can can keep this going and keep Northwestern, a perennial bowl team, in as you know, the Big Ten becomes the dominant conference in college football. Um, it's just, it, it, it's really incredible what he's accomplished there, and I think he is the perfect team, perfect guy to lead them into this nor, nor, um, new era. And it really seems like Northwestern may not be the bottom rung of the conference after all, because I really saw no way out for them heading into this season. I thought it was very, very bleak. And I think you can list off three, four, five programs at the very least um, who are in a much worse position than Northwestern heading into next season. So again, you know, props to David Braun, what he's been able to accomplish this season. It's not done yet. We will see them in the postseason, which I just think is one of the greatest accomplishments of the college football season. Um, and again, can't, can't wait to see more of them and more of David Braun in the future. And like I said, Wisconsin also reached that sixth win of the season, which I think at the beginning of the season, if you said they had only had six wins heading into the last week of the regular season, you would have said this season has been a gigantic disappointment. And I don't think you'd be wrong even saying that today. Um, but given what we've saw, what we've seen out of this team and just kind of the drive they were giving and the lack of effort we've seen in a few games, um, I think their ability to, to win this game says a lot because they were down. Uh, they gave up touchdown drives to Nebraska on their first two plays and punted on their first two possessions. We're down 14 nothing early, and it really seemed like, man, I mean, Luke Fickle might be losing this team. It was a bad look, but they overcame. I mean, they fought, unlike they have in the past few weeks. Um, ended up winning 24-17 to in overtime. And it was, I mean, just again, tip of the hat there. I mean, Luke Fickle does seem to kind of have the reins on this program. Uh, they definitely are, I guess, 
like I said this last week, I think coming into the season, expecting them to win nine or 10 games and win the Big Ten West, as mediocre as this division is, was probably a lot to ask given how just fundamentally mediocre they were at the end of the, at the end of the day. Uh, last season, they had a lot to change and he is changing a lot on both sides of the ball. So I guess, you know, hindsight's always 2020, probably put uh, a little bit too much on their shoulders heading into this year. Um, but it was huge for them to get this sixth win, especially heading into this rivalry game against Minnesota. Anything can happen in that game. That's definitely not an, an easy win that they're going to go try to get. So getting that sixth sixth win, now potentially to get a seventh, get to a decent bowl game, and now all of a sudden an 8-5 and five season is on the table, and given where they, how we were talking about this team just last week, would be, I, I think that would be a great end to the season and would give them some positive momentum heading into a pivotal year two for Luke Fickle. Their schedule is going to get harder, but it was it, at the end of the day, you know, they were beating a you know, 500 Nebraska team. They were favored by about a touchdown. So, I mean, they did what they had to do. They got that sixth win. Props to Luke Fickle. They still have a lot of work to do to get to where they ultimately want to be as a program. But, it, you know, if they lost these last two games, went 5-7, and seven, missed out on a bowl game entirely, the outlook of Wisconsin heading into next season would be a lot different. So, um, you know, they got the win they needed to. Good for them. But, you know, still a long way to go as far as that program goes. But end of the day, Wisconsin is bowl eligible. Before I get into this long Ohio State-Michigan preview I have coming up, I want to do a little bit more college football playoff talk uh, because there are six games really that have a direct impact on the college football playoff. I mean, there's still a lot of teams that have a shot in getting into this four-team playoff, um, but they've gotten trimmed week over week, and the picture is starting to become a little clear. The first game that really has a big impact on it is Texas Tech, Tech Texas. I mean, Texas, I think, is around a two-touchdown two favorite in this game, um, and on paper, it looks like they should win, but I feel like we've been waiting all season long for Texas to do their thing and let their, and really just be a letdown and play their way out of the playoff and you know i mean i don't think anyone in the country would be shocked if texas lost this game to their rival one of the the last time they're going to be playing each other for the foreseeable future and so the thing with that if texas loses i mean just plain and simple they're out even if they go win the big big 12 title um there probably is some crazy scenario where texas can get back into the college football playoff conversation as an 11 and 2 uh big 12 champion but i think that would probably involve like georgia losing the georgia tech this weekend um and that's not a game i'm counting as having an impact on the playoff because georgia should and will stomp them so we're not even going to go there plain and simple texas loses they're out but even if they win i mean i think the the assumption is texas wins out they're 12 and 1 champion they should get into that playoff but i really think texas needs to start showing some semblance of dominance if they want to be confident heading into that selection sunday that they will be able to fend off alabama because yes Texas has that head-to-head win over Alabama, but since that game, I mean, you've, if you've watched both teams week over week, Alabama has gotten better and better and better, and to be perfectly honest, they are the last team in college football I would want to play right now. Texas, meanwhile, has been kind of stagnant. I mean, you could accredit a lot of that to Quinn Ewers being out for a few weeks, but he's come back and hasn't necessarily lit up the scoreboard. I mean, they have squeaked by wins against Iowa State and uh, TCU, and it's just... I know the committee should respect that head-to-head win, but if Alabama wins out, I mean, beats an undefeated Georgia in that SEC championship, especially if they do it in a dominant fashion, how can you leave them out of the 14 playoff? Especially if Texas, you know, beats Texas Tech by a field goal, plays whoever in the Big 12 championship and wins that by one possession. Like, I know you got to respect that head-to-head, and I guess you could make the argument could be made if you're not going to respect the head-to-head, then why are we even playing the games? But at the same point, I think that's part of the reason why we put 
um, you know, a committee into place instead of computer rankings so we can have that objective look and be like, listen, Texas did beat Alabama, but Alabama's the better team right now. So, I mean, that is a conversation and a decision I wouldn't be envious of making because I think either way you go, it, you know, you're going to piss some people off. But I think if Texas wants to be confident that they can fend off Alabama going into that selection Sunday, they need to start showing some dominance. And I think they need to beat Texas Tech by a good margin and look good doing it. And that brings me to the second game that's going to have some implications. That's Auburn, Alabama. And I know I just said I'm not going to count Georgia, Georgia Tech in this game, uh, in, in this group of games, but I'm including Auburn, Alabama. It seems maybe counterintuitive because um, Auburn has been just pretty bad this year. But um, I will say, you know, Auburn has played up for this game many, many times in the Saban rivalry. Hist- historically, this has been the most difficult matchup for Nick Saban. Alabama should win by three plus possessions, but crazier things have certainly happened. You would figure a second loss would eliminate Alabama, but you know, with the SEC favoritism that the committee tends to show, um, it could be very interesting if they somehow lose to Auburn, but then turn around and beat Georgia. Um, and now an 11 and two SEC champion, where do they fit into the mix if more teams drop off? But again, I think we're getting into kind of crazy scenarios, which could happen on paper, but if we're just being realistic, won't happen. So got to assume Alabama, a loss either against Auburn or Georgia will eliminate them. And that gets us into a couple ACC and a couple Pac-12 games that have a lot of implications. The first one is Florida, I mean, the ACC ones, Florida State, Florida, and that rivalry game in Gainesville, and then Kentucky versus Louisville. Um, Louisville gets them at home. Again, I just feel like the state of the ACC, they definitely have not been a really impressive conference by any means. I think a loss from either of them would eliminate them. But I will say, I think there has been a lot of talk about, you know, even if Florida State wins out, how does the committee evaluate them now that Jordan Travis is out? And I'll be frank, I haven't necessarily been really impressed by Florida State for a large portion of this year, but 13-0 is 13-0. No matter how you get there, if you play in a Power 5 conference, you go 13-0, you deserve one of those top four spots. And, uh, you know, I don't care how they win these next two weeks. I don't care if they win, if they beat... um you know, Florida, again, a Florida team that might not even be going to a bowl game. And then, uh, Louisville by six points combined. I don't care. They're 13 to know you put them in the playoff. They have earned that. Um, they've earned that end of the day. And, you know, but at the same time, I'm saying what should happen if it's two really sloppy wins and they don't look good and Jordan Travis's replacement does not play well. I think it really could be an interesting debate, at least for the committee about between them and a 12 and one Texas and a 12 and one Alabama, like kind of who do you, and, or, and then a 12 and one Georgia in that case too. Like it could get really, it could get really crazy. Um, but I think also, I, I think if Florida State drops this game and even if they go in beat an 11 one Louisville by 50 points, I just think that takes him out. I don't think, I, I don't think the committee is looking for an excuse to put in a Florida State team with their backup quarterback into the playoff. And same thing with Louisville. I mean, a loss would certainly eliminate them. And I think they're really being discounted in this whole college football playoff conversation. But all of a sudden, them winning out does not seem so crazy. Um, I think, you know, if Florida State and Louisville played right now, I would imagine that line would be right around even. And so all they have to do in order to get into the playoff, first of all, win out take care of your own business. That's a given. Um, you'd want Georgia to beat Alabama. So, you know, Georgia would be 13 to no, take that number one spot, Alabama out of the conversation. You would want Ohio state to beat Michigan because I think an 11 to one in Ohio state versus 12 and one Louisville could be an interesting debate because Ohio state does have, um, that win against Penn state and that win against Notre Dame, um, a win that Louisville also shares. But I mean, we can't, 
sit here and pretend like the college football playoff committee doesn't think about matchups and viewerships. I mean, I don't, th- Ohio state would definitely be in an argument with Louisville if it came down to that. But I think if Ohio state beats Michigan again, I think a 12 and one Louisville would be taken over an 11, one Michigan, especially with their controversy going on, no quality out of conference wins. So um, Louisville wants Georgia to win out, wants Ohio state to win out. Do um, you want Washington to beat Oregon? Don't want to get into that kind of conversation with, Oh, who do you take a 12, and one Washington who had beaten the one team that had beat them versus Louisville. So you want Washington to beat Oregon again, and then you want Texas to drop another game, which I think seems reasonable. All that happens, the committee will not have a choice but to put Louisville in the playoff. 13-0 Georgia, 13-0 Ohio State, 13-0 Washington, 12-1 Louisville would be your playoff, and it'd be a pretty easy decision for them. So that is certainly on the table, but it really hinges on Texas. I think Texas losing is what can open up a lot of opportunities um, and some really kind of crazy scenarios with the playoff. And that'll bring us then to the Pac-12, Oregon State, Oregon in the last civil war that we will see in the foreseeable future. And then Washington State, Washington, another really underrated rivalry that we're not going to see much anymore moving forward as both Oregon and Washington are joining the Big Ten. So, I mean, the Pac-12 would have a spot secured if both Oregon and Washington win this week. The Pac-12 championship will be an in and your win scenario. Um, Oregon, if they were to lose to Washington a second time, they would be out. Really no way in for them. And if Washington were to lose to Oregon, they would probably slip. It seems like the co- the committee has really been holding those two tight wins they had after Oregon against them a little bit. Um, but I think they would certainly be in the conversation depending on how um, other teams shake out. And that's actually an interesting scenario now that I think about it. What if Washington loses to Washington State this weekend, but then turns around and has a great win against Oregon in the Pac-12 championship? They'd be a 12-1 and champion. I would imagine they'd be behind you know, the Big Ten champion, behind a 12-1 and Texas, behind a 12-1 and Alabama if they were to win the SEC, and then also behind a 12-1 and Georgia if they were to lose to Alabama in that title game. They'd be behind a 13-0 and Florida State. Um and so that's five teams, I mean, that they could confidently be behind, depending how things shake out. I think a debate between, you know, 12 and 1 Washington and 11 and 1 Ohio State, that'd be an interesting debate, as well as maybe 11 and 1 Michigan or 12 and 1 Louisville. But, I mean, Again, those are, I mean, those are the debates that the committee might have to happen. But if I'm being, if I'm being realistic, I don't think Washington is going to drop this game. If there's a team that I think could actually drop a game and really surprise some people would be Oregon, Oregon against Oregon State. Wouldn't be shocked at all if they dropped that game, um, against a team that's going to be playing. It's hard out and they could very well turn around. I mean, lose this game and then turn around, beat Washington. And that's exactly how the Pac-12 just plays themselves right out of the playoff. Um, and there wouldn't really be much wiggle room for them if that happened. Like, they would be out. But let's simplify this for a second. Let's assume Big Ten champion goes undefeated. They secure a spot. And let's assume the Pac-12 champion, whether it be Oregon or Washington, they take care of business this weekend and they secure a second spot. What I think is really going to happen, like if I'm placing a bet right now, I'm probably betting on Alabama to beat Georgia. I just love the way they're playing. And I really don't think, I know that Georgia has racked up wins against Missouri and Tennessee and Ole Miss. I haven't been particularly impressed by any. I mean, Missouri has definitely the most complete team of those three but Ole Miss and Tennessee, I've been saying it all year long, they're overrated. I don't know if they're really, this team um, led by Carson Beck is ready for the challenge that will be Alabama. If I'm going into that game, I'm taking Alabama. So that just opens up a whole can of worms. So we have two spots confirmed already with the Big Ten and the Pac-12 champions. And Alabama as a 12-1 team, again, beating 13-0 uh, Georgia, I mean, 12-0 Georgia, 
got to figure Alabama goes into that playoff. Like, I, I don't care. Because you can't put... You, the SEC is getting into the playoff somehow, some way, and you cannot put Georgia above Alabama in that case. So I think Alabama takes that third spot, and then all of a sudden, the fourth, fourth, um, fourth spot is up for grabs between, you know, a 12-1 and Georgia, the ACC champion, and then Texas. I think if Texas wins out, no matter how close it is, I got to figure they take that spot. You know, you got to respect the conference championship. You have Alabama in who Texas beat. I don't really know how the committee could work around trying to say that uh, Georgia, who just lost to Alabama, who Texas beat, deserves to be in over Texas. Um, I couldn't get that at all. And again, if Florida State wins out, I think they are that fourth spot. But then an interesting scenario here. What if, you know, let's say Texas loses, get them off the table, and then Louisville wins out and is the ACC champion. Are you going to take a 12 and 1 Georgia over a 12 and 1 Louisville probably? Yeah, probably. Would that be the right decision? I'm not so sure. Um I cuz the committee says, you know, one of the, the three biggest things they base decisions off of is conference championships. And I honestly believe, I mean, Georgia, if you play Alabama in the SEC championship, your playoff starts a week early. Take care of business. That's all you got to do. Um, I would really like to see Louisville in the S- in the in the college football playoff, especially with the parity that's going on. Like if Ohio State plays Louisville, they probably win. I don't think they're beating the brakes off them this year. I don't think Ohio State's that kind of team. So I'd really like to see a new team in the playoff. I think it'd be a lot of fun. But I think it's where Alabama beats Georgia. How much does the college football playoff committee really favor the SEC? How far are they going to go to try to get that second SEC team in? Um, it'll be. It's really kind of fascinating. And all we can do is sit back and watch the games. We should have a great weekend of rivalry games this weekend and set up for a college uh, conference championship weekend uh, where a lot of scenarios are on the table. So we'll definitely break that down further. But that's just a little glimmer into what we're looking in this week. Weekend. We have obviously those six games really the bi- um, are the biggest on the schedule as far as impacting the playoff, but they are all second to the game, the rivalry, the game of the college football season, Ohio State versus Michigan. So first part of this little preview for the biggest game of the college football season, I'm going to talk about the implications of this game and more than just, you know, on paper, what Ohio State and Michigan are playing for. Bragging rights, obviously, and the best rivalry in all of sports. Winner wins the Big Ten East, essentially guarantees themselves a spot in the playoff, while the loser, you know, there is a kind of convoluted path for the loser to still get into the playoff. But given what we've seen this season, doubt that's going to happen. So, um, but outside of that, I mean, this game has a tremendous impact on the trajectory of both of these programs. I mean, first of all, we do have to acknowledge that this is going to be probably the last time in the foreseeable future that the Ohio State Michigan game has this sort of implications because Big Ten eliminates divisions. So the likelihood that the loser of Ohio State versus Michigan is left out of the Big Ten championship entirely is definitely lessens. But also with the 12 team playoff, a lot of times when these teams play moving forward, both of them will have essentially a playoff spot guaranteed. So they're going to be playing obviously for the good of the rivalry, you know, for those bragging rights, they're always going to want to beat their rival, but they're really just going to be at the end of the day, playing for seeding so i mean it just we won't see it again where you know the winner of this game is likely the big 10 champion and goes to the playoff while the loser is left out of both um that's not going to happen very much again moving forward but i think you know the impact of this one game is going to have on the trajectory of both these programs cannot be um, overstated 
I'll start off with Ohio State because they've seem, seemingly done nothing but win under Ryan Day, except when it's mattered most. Obviously, their first season in 2019, I think an all-time great team, all-time great roster, faltered against Clemson, really beat themselves in that game. Um, the year after that, they got over the hump against uh, Clemson, but then got blown out by Alabama, which is just, at the end of the day, a much better team than them. You'll go to 2021 and the 2022 lost to Michigan in a game that would have taken them to the uh, Big Ten Championship and last year still got into the playoff but had a just heartbreaking loss against Georgia so I mean they've won essentially every other game other than the ones that I've mentioned the other one loss being Oregon at home in 2021 um, but they, I mean they've seemingly done nothing but win except when it really matters most and I think this roster for Ohio State is as good as any in college football and I would argue that Ohio State's culture is as good as anyone in college football as well but I think everyone knows beating Michigan is always the goal for Ohio State. And losing three straight times is something that few Ohio State coaches can survive, even the great Ryan Day, given everything he's accomplished at this school. Now, if this is a tight game down to the wire, um, I think losing three three straight games against Michigan is never easy. But I think this is one that Ohio State fans and the administration and the university can start can can forgive Ryan Day for in time because this is a senior-laden, ultra-talented Michigan team, probably, I mean, arguably one of their most talented teams in the history of that program. And they're going to be playing on a road in a game where Michigan actually does have the quarterback advantage, which is arguably the only time you could make that argument this century was in 2011, which is just crazy to think about. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes the other team is just better. And that might be the case this year. If Ohio State loses out on a really tight game on the road, I think that they can forgive him for that and give him one more shot next year where it's like, hey, you beat Michigan or you're gone. And he knows that going in. But if this is another game, like the past two years, where Ohio State misses opportunities early to take control of the game, and then Michigan ends up just punching him in the throat in the second half and ends up winning by three possessions and ends up with a firm win, I don't see Ryan Day staying. I'll be honest. Whether or not, you know, Ohio State fans can sit there and argue whether or not that'd be the right decision to make or not. I think if Ohio State gets dominated by Michigan for a third straight year, it is just... it's going to be really tough for Ryan Day to keep his job. And, you know, barring a backdoor playoff entrance, and which would end in a massive upset by Ohio State facing whoever they would play in the playoff, um, I just have a hard time seeing Ohio State hold on to him if he has the same results against Michigan three years in a row. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm just saying what I think will happen. And I, but at the end of the day, you know, letting a coach go that has won 90% of his games is always a risky game. And if that happens, you know, who could Ohio State hire that would understand this rivalry and the program's goals and be an improvement, be a step forward and help Ohio State get to the ultimate goal they're trying to do, get to every year, and that's beat Michigan, win the Big Ten, and win a national championship. That is their goal every single year. Who can they get? That's not Ryan Day. That would, you know, put them in a better position to um, reach those goals. And I think, you know, a loss to Michigan would be a pivotal time for this Ohio State program, um, a, a program that has really never reached uh, the level of mediocrity that, you know, a Notre Dame, um, a Michigan, and even Alabama has in the past few decades. They've really never sunk to that low. But it seems like Ohio State could be a bad hire away from at least slipping from college football's elite and no longer being like a, you know, as we head into the 12 team playoff era, um, you know, they're a bad hire away from, you know, not being a shoe in for the playoff every year. They could be fighting to be in the top 25 if, if a next hire doesn't go right. So I'm just saying a loss to Michigan, depending on how bad it is, could end up setting Ohio State back as a program if they decide to do something drastic and get rid of Ryan Day.
And then on the flip side, I mean, there's no secret about what's going on with Michigan. You know, the the cheating scandal, the Stein stealing scandal, Stein stealing scandal, everything that's going on with them. And you know, I'm not going to touch on really what my opinions are on that situation right now. We got plenty of time after this regular season wraps up to dissect that. Don't want to take it away time from the, the, the play on the field to talk about that, but. It seems like some level of sanctions are inevitable, and I'd be shocked if Harbaugh was the coach next year, whether or not he gets suspended or he just goes to the NFL under his own free will. Um, I think the future beyond this season is anything but certain for Michigan, because um, also, like I said, this is a senior-laden team. They are going to have, I think, unprecedented amounts of player turnover that uh, compared to what they've been used to at Michigan. Um, so, I mean, they're definitely heading into a very uncertain offseason where they're going to have to replace a lot of really great players. They're going to have to replace one of the greatest coaches in their history but a win i think against ohio state could set it all right it could tell the nation that they're not going anywhere sure i mean maybe breaking in a new coach next year along with all that player turnover and a brutal schedule might be a step down might mean a nine or ten win season might means might mean they're not playing for a big 10 championship who knows but you know with the 12 team playoff that is much more acceptable i mean they cannot make the big 10 championship and still be in position to get to the playoff and i feel like a win here could give michigan the affirmation that they are still doing everything right as far as running this program could keep the recruits faith in the program as they enter an uncertain time and really keep Michigan in a really appealing job one of the most appealing jobs in all of college football should they have to replace Jim Harbaugh but a loss especially if they get beaten down um, like they have in so many years past and like they've done to Ohio State the past two years a loss could leave this program spiraling Um, you know it's, it's you know, next year is a transition year for the program, no matter how you slice it, no matter what the result is on Saturday. And a loss in the biggest game of the past 15 years for this program would be a tough place to start as they start getting that going. So um, I think both teams really need a win, just not only for this season, but as they project towards the future. Uh, but we'll move away from kind of the hypotheticals and the future of those programs and focus really on the, what's on the field what we've been seeing from those two teams and um, I'll start off by seeing by saying you know what we've seen this month from these two teams what have we seen recently because we know what the narrative of these team these two teams is over the stretch of the season but what have we seen recently um, that kind of can indicate which direction this game is going to go so on the Michigan side their defense has certainly flexed their muscles I mean they came into the season at least I had a little bit of concern if they had if they would have a dominant pass, pass rusher step up and I was worried if they had adequate depth in the secondary but they have been proven to be a better overall unit than their defense last year um, they use ample depth along that defensive front to mitigate the run game and make life miserable for opposing quarterbacks that secondary you know still hasn't been challenged much but they have continued to make big plays continue to come up with um, turn turnovers at a really an alarming rate and just be shut down across the board but offensively I still have a lot of question marks you know JJ McCarthy hasn't thrown a touchdown since the Michigan State game four weeks ago uh Blake Corum you know he's playing his best you know he's the same running back he has been the past two seasons um but he hasn't really been dominant this month I mean Mich- I mean the run game as a whole I mean I mean they averaged only 3.3 yards per carry against Maryland and I think Michigan's it's either an inability to open up the offense or a refusal like they're trying to hide something for Ohio State um it it really comes down to their offensive line because I mean they've been solid all year definitely an above average unit but they are clearly nowhere near the level of the past two seasons I mean Michigan has had been fielding an NFL offensive line the past two years and this unit just is not up to that level 
And now they're starting to get thin at tackle. I mean, that lack of experience behind Ladarius Henderson and Miles Hinton, both of whom um, were either injured or knocked out of the game last week, which is a big reason why that offensive line struggled. Um, you know, that lack of depth behind them was exposed against Maryland. They couldn't move the ball, and it allowed Maryland to hang in there. And, you know, J.J. McCarthy, he isn't sitting in clean pockets anymore and he does have incredible arm talent i think there are very few throws on the field that he can't make but i still really haven't seen him you know consistently sit in that pocket under duress make quick accurate decisions and consistently push the ball downfield in small windows i mean you could say yeah he did it against ohio state last year but he hit wide open receivers in busted coverages in plays that he likely knew the blitz was coming and he knew exactly where the bust would be i mean you don't want to take away from their win last year and his performance but you know let's not pretend like he that was elite quarterback play that we saw from JJ McCarthy last year and you know and to make matters worse along with this damaged offensive line Roman Wilson got banged up against Maryland he had to leave the game seemed like it might have been a concussion but really hard to tell Michigan hasn't said what that injury is um it's uncertain if he'll be 100% or even available to go at all next weekend and if he loses Roman Wilson their only really true number one receiver the only guy who can really go challenge you know, challenge cornerbacks and try to win one-on-one balls. He's really their only bona fide receiver. And if they lose him, it is going to be a long day offensively for Michigan. So as much as I've been impressed with Michigan's defense all year, and I continue to be, I mean, they are easily argument could be made that the best defense in the country they really have not shown any weak spots this season um, I do have massive question marks about this offense and they have not been answered this November and the more I've watched them this past in these past few months in November the more question marks I get um, and on the Ohio State side meanwhile I think it's actually trending in a very different direction for them um, you know despite they continue to be without Tommy Eichenberg who's to be determined for Saturday don't know what his status is and Lathan Ransom their safety he's likely out out. Um, despite the fact that they've been out for the past few games, this defense has never wavered, continued to be dominant. They've allowed only six points combined the past two weeks. One of the nation's best in the red zone, one of the nation's best in short yarder situations. Jack Sawyer, I was hard on him earlier in the season because he really was not winning in any pass rush reps, was not getting pressure on the quarterback, but he's finally come alive. He's been a really true difference maker in pass rush and in run defense. Tyreek Williams on the inside, he looks like an All-American in the middle. I think he could be a first-round draft pick at defensive tackle i think he's been probably the most underrated defender maybe in the entire country and their cornerbacks you know david abinosum and denzel burke continue to drape receivers and you know much like michigan this defense has not really shown many weak points throughout the season offensively listen i mean this offense has question marks just like michigan but i feel like we know ohio state's identity offensively a little bit more and they're more comfortable with it you know at the end of the day kyle mccord hasn't developed like many have hoped including myself i thought the way he started off the season he was showing positive signs about improving every week i thought he could get not to a cj stroud level but he could definitely get to a point where they can open up this offense and throw the ball 30 or 40 games without blinking um he really hasn't gotten to that point. It's pretty clear he's not going to come out and throw for 350 yards against Michigan. Um, but the thing is, this offense doesn't need him to be great in order to be really effective. Um, you know, Cade Stover, their tight end, and Marvin Harrison Jr. seem to win every single one-on-one battle. And Travion Henderson has proven over the past few weeks since he's returned from injury that he is maybe the nation's best running back when he's healthy i mean he has made this offense so much more balanced over the past few weeks and he's the type of guy that you can feed 30 times in a game and he can still 
rip off a 50-yard touchdown run in the fourth quarter. He has that kind of strength, um, that combination of, of strength and speed that, you know, he can power away, pick up tough yardage after tough yardage, and then all of a sudden he can make one man, one man miss and house it. Um, the offensive line is healthy. They're, they're playing much better in run blocking than they have earlier in the season. Josh Fryer is certainly a liability at right tackle, but otherwise he's, I mean, the offensive line has been sound in pass protection pass protection outside of Fryer. Um, yeah, I think we know what this Ohio State offense is. is a collection of unreal skill position players with a quarterback who can consistently get them the ball if he's protected. He struggles when he's not, but this is also a team that's used to be having to run the ball and win games in the trenches and win ugly. So, I mean, we've seen them kind of open up the offense. We've seen Kyle McCord have big days. We've seen Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Buka and Cade Slover all take the tops off of defenses. But when that doesn't work, we've seen Ohio State kind of get back to their their old old three yards in a cloud of dust roots that they have as a program. So we've seen them win both ways. I think they're comfortable winning both ways. And I think that kind of gives Ohio State a little bit of an edge heading into this game. So let's get to the actual preview of what we will see on the field in Ann Arbor on Saturday. We'll start off with when Michigan has the ball. And it's no secret they're going to try to run the ball down Ohio State's throat like they have the past two seasons. We will see their air game open up a little bit more compared to what we've seen for the majority of the season. And I'm not sure if it will be by choice or by force, but they will have to open up that offense because Ohio State's run defense is as good as any. They don't allow any big plays. And even though Ohio State's offense isn't really elite and definitely not at the level it's been the past two seasons, they will be able to do more than Penn State did. So Michigan is not going to be able to line up and run the ball 32 straight times and expect to win. Ohio State will get some points on this Michigan defense. So Michigan is going to have no choice but to open up the offense a little bit more if they want to move the ball. So um, we know we're going to see some more shots, but I think this offense, at the end of the day, will still start and end with the run game. And they really like to run inside. So it's going to be a lot of that interior offensive line for Michigan, which is the strength of that line against the interior defensive line of Ohio State and their linebackers, which is probably the strength of Ohio State's defense. So, I mean, that's going to be a battle. When Michigan lines up and tries to hit that A-gap, it's going to be a lot of big hits. And it's going to be, I mean, just really hard-nosed, smash-mouth football. Um, and I think both sides will get there. It's like Ohio State is going to make plays they're going to get behind the line of scrimmage and they're going to make some big tackles but Quorum and Edwards are sure to bust a couple chunk plays of 20 to 25 yards so it should be a lot of fun seeing Michigan try to run that ball against that beefy interior line for Ohio State but I think J.J. McCarthy's athleticism is also going to have to come into play depending how healthy he is and how healthy this offensive line is Um, because Ohio State really hasn't played a quarterback that is a consistent threat as a scrambler I mean obviously Talia likes to scramble around that cornerback but he is much smaller and not as fast as J.J. McCarthy and he is prone to make even worse decisions when he's trying to extend plays than J.J. McCarthy has Um, so I think J.J. really gives this this Ohio State defense another wrinkle to adjust for that they haven't had to adjust just for yet this season and that makes me think Michigan will have some success moving the ball but I am really concerned about the health and the performance of these offensive tackles for Michigan um, over the past couple weeks because it has not been not been good they are not 100% and they are not playing their best and Ohio State has a chance to really make JJ McCarthy uncomfortable and take away the threat of the deep pass because he just simply won't have time I mean JJ McCarthy is is not CJ Stroud um, we, we know that he is not sitting in the pocket and delivering a 50 yard bomb on the dot. Like he's, he's just not capable of that. I, at least I don't think so. 
So, um, I mean, if Ohio State with JT Tuimolowo and Jack Sawyer, who have really come on stronger and stronger as the season has gone on, if they're able to dominate these tackles who might be backups or they might be their starters who aren't 100%, um, they could really disrupt this pass game. So I think Michigan will be able to run the ball with some success. But like I said before, they're not running it 32 straight times with any success against this defense. If Michigan wants to have success on offense, one of their biggest keys is going to be protect the pass rush minimize the impact that JT, Tui Molowau, and Jack Sawyer have on this game. And it's also going to come down to the uh, red zone. Because like I said, I think Michigan will be able to move the ball with some success. But, you know, if they're able to turn whatever number of successful drives they do have into touchdowns, they're probably going to win. I mean, I think 20 is really the key number in this game. Whoever gets the 21st is probably going to win. And, you know, if they're converting red zone trips into touchdowns consistently, yeah, I think Michigan is going to walk away with a win. Um, but if they have to settle for field goals instead, it's going to, that's really going to determine how much is needed out of this Ohio State offense. Because if, you know, Michigan's just kicking field goal after field goal, if, you know, they're heading into the third quarter with 10 or 13 points, I think that's a pretty good place for Ohio State to be in. Um, so again, they're, and how they perform in the red zone will once again come down to those tackles holding up and J.J. McCarthy um, making throws or being able to escape the pocket. Um, the red zone is where the Buckeye defense really steps up and it's going to be a key for the Michigan offense. So, you know, this Ohio State defense doesn't turn, turn the ball over a ton. I'm not expecting them to force Michigan into mistakes that they typically haven't made this season. So their job when they go out there every series will be just keep Michigan out of the end zone. Whether Michigan can even make it to the red zone and get, ultimately get into the end zone, um, it's going to come down to you know how these offensive tackles perform against the pass rush of Ohio State um, and how healthy J.J. McCarthy is, You know if he's able to scramble around or not. So I think those are the keys to really watch for when Michigan has the ball. So let's pivot to when Ohio State has the ball. And like I said before, we're 11 games in, and it still doesn't seem like this Michigan defense really has much of a weakness at all. But at the same time, I'm also not sure if they have someone who can line up with Marvin Harrison Jr. I mean, Mike Sanders still is probably the best slot corner in the entire country, but he is just that, a slot corner. He's undersized, and he's not someone that can really match the size and speed combination of Marvin Harrison Jr. Will Johnson is their best cornerback by a mile as far as you know matching up one-on-one in receivers, but we saw what Marvin Harrison did to Kalen King against Penn State, and by my estimations, Kalen King is a better corner than Will Johnson is. Um, I think Regardless, uh, I think Marvin Harrison is going to demand safety help on every play, which could mean a big day for Stover because Michigan's linebackers are great, but I mean, they really don't miss a tackle at all, but I mean, they're mainly great against the run and in pressuring the passer and in eating up blocks and opening up gaps for that defensive line to really operate. I don't think they've really been asked to do a ton in pass coverage this season, and I think lining up against Cade Stover is will be their biggest challenge that they've faced so far this year, but this side of the ball is going to be determined by Kyle McCord and Travion Henderson. Those are really the two names that are going to determine how successful Ohio State is against this um, Michigan defense. Because, you know, if Michigan, if Kyle McCord is somehow saving his best performance of the year for last, and he plays with anticipation, maneuvers the pocket well, doesn't turn it over, um, doesn't take sacks, and comes up with, you know, a lot of big-time throws, and, you know, if he plays at, you know, a level like we've seen C.J. Stroud throw, throw uh, play throughout the years, I think Ohio State wins handedly. 
but I don't think that seems very likely. I don't think Kyle McCord turning in a CJ Stroud or Justin Fields-esque performance does not seem likely. Um, but so what Ohio State really needs out of him is just good decisions. Sometimes it's better to take the sack. It's okay to miss on a few throws as long as they don't end up going to the other team and really just do not turn the ball over at any costs. You know, Ohio State needs him to make a few great plays when he has to, but for the most part, just make good decisions, hit the open receiver, and don't turn the ball over. That's what they need out of him. But if Kyle McCord doesn't even do that, if the moment is too big for him, if he's rattled by the crowd, and if he turns the ball over a couple times, misses on open receivers, Ohio State could end up getting dog-walked again. Um, so let's call what I just outlined there the Kyle McCord spectrum, because there is anywhere on that spectrum he could realistically end up playing. And I think where on that spectrum he needs to play in order for Ohio State to win will depend on this run game. Because if there are gaps for Travion Henderson to work through in this run game, if he's able to, you know, get to the second level and end up being one one guy away from hitting like a 60-yard touchdown run, if he's able to consistently pick up chunk yardage, that's a, that's a scary proposition for Michigan. Because this is the first time they're playing Travion Henderson when he is 100% healthy. Um, and he's playing like the best running back in college football right now. In the four games in the since his return from injury, he's averaging 166 total yards per game. He has five touchdowns and is averaging nearly eight yards per carry. Let me say that again. He is averaging almost eight yards a carry, 7.8 to be exact, in the past four games. Like, he is playing the best football at the running back position out of anyone in the college football right now. So what I'm really watching for in this run game is first downs and in short yardage, because I think Ryan Day has showed that he really likes to run the ball on first down, even in instances where Ohio State's running game had not been great, like against Maryland, um, and they're only picking up one to two yards at best on first down, he has still shown a commitment to running it on first down. And he's also shown that he really likes to throw the ball on second down, even in second and longs. So you really do not want to get into third and longs against this Michigan defense. So how those first down runs end up going will determine how much of that is asked of Kyle McCord and, you know, how likely Ohio State is to go on sustained drives. And short yardage situations is going to be equally as important because that's an area where Ohio State has consistently struggled so far this season. Do they have the confidence to line up in a jumbo set on fourth and inches and run the ball when Michigan knows? it's coming or are they going to have to rely on Kyle McCord to make a play on fourth down because that could be another scary idea with Ohio State for Ohio State you know if they have Junior Colson, Jalen Harrell, Michael Barrett, Josiah Stewart and that really just that incredibly deep defensive line if they're all able to just pin their ears back and get after him on fourth down I'm not so sure I trust Kyle McCord to go make that right decision um, and make a you know make a play make something out of nothing so um, you know, Kyle McCord first and foremost needs to take care of the ball if Ohio State to, if Ohio State wants to win, and you know, determining how good exactly he has to play will come down to the run game. If they're able to get a push on first down, set up second and intermediates, and then third and shorts where they can run or throw the ball, um, and how they go on short yardage situations. You know, if they are able to line up against Michigan and convert those, or if it's going to end up in Kyle McCord's hands. So um, I think Ohio State's success on first down and short yardage runs will be the determining factor on this side of the ball. So that'll take us into our official prediction for this game. I think this is going to be a low-slowing slugfest, one in the trenches. It really gives me a lot of 2016 vibes when those were two great defenses with two offenses that had a lot of question marks. Again, that 2016 Ohio State offense was really all centered around Curtis Samuel, and he really was the pulse of that offense along with JT Barrett running the ball. And it's kind of similar. I mean, the the pulse of this offense is around Travion Henderson Henderson running the ball and Marvin Harrison doing things on the outside. So... 
um, gives me shades of 2016, this game does. Um, but I'm just, frankly, a little bit more concerned about Michigan's offense than I am about any of the other units lining up on Saturday. I'm not sure how this offensive line will hold up. I'm not sure how healthy they are, and I'm not sure if their backups are ready to go up against a ridiculously talented defensive front. I'm also not certain how healthy J.J. McCarthy is. I'm not sure if he's ready to really make big throws under duress. I'm not sure about the health of his number one receiver, Roman Wilson. And it seems like I'm, it, this kind of seems like the position that Ohio State has been in the past couple years. They have been really beaten up going into the Michigan in the past couple years, last year especially. And this year, it seems like they're actually very healthy. Offensively, I, I think, you know, no one's really listed on an injury report. All 11 starters on, are healthy on offense for Ohio State. Defensively, Tommy Eichenberg is questionable. Lathan Ransom figures to be out, but that's really it. They have all their depth there. And because of, you know, some guys being out the past few weeks, a lot of backups have gotten really valuable reps. So it feels like Michigan is in a position that Ohio State's been in where they're not at 100% health heading into this game. And, you know, I'm also not sure if J.J. McCarthy has really taken the reps necessary this season where he needs to step up into a blitz and deliver an accurate ball down the field when it truly matters. Because, sure, he's done it against Rutgers where they ended up winning by 24. He's done it against, you know, East Carolina. Um, he, But he hasn't done it in situations where, you know, the game is on the line and it's a really close one-possession game in the fourth quarter. He just hasn't had to make those reps. Kyle McCord has plenty of time so far this year, and J.J. McCarthy hasn't. And I think, you know, I said it before, running the ball 30 straight time, 32 straight times won't win them this game. And I'm concerned about their ability to really open it up. And, you know, when they have to go against the defense that doesn't allow big plays, you know, how do you respond to that? So it just seems like there's a lot of unknowns about that side of the ball for Michigan. That being said, I certainly have my concerns about Ohio State going, their offense going up against this Michigan defense. But, I think the biggest difference, like I said before, between this year and last year for Ohio State is they are so much healthier. Marvin Harrison Jr., Emeka Ibuka, Cade Stover, Travion Henderson all appear to be as close to 100% as you can be at this point in the season. Offensive line has started the same five guys all year. Nothing on the injury report, like I said before. Ohio State's used to winning games ugly and running the blood out of the football when they need to. Um, and... Kyle McCord, as mediocre as he has been for a lot of this season, he's also delivered in a lot of big situations before. You know, I think back to that Notre Dame game, you know, he went on that, that game winning drive with the crowd being really loud. I think that, that's the kind of situation that really prepares you for what he's stepping into this Saturday. So I do think Michigan has trouble converting in the red zone. And I think Travion Henderson does enough in the run game to take the pressure off of Kyle McCord. So he doesn't have to go out there, throw the ball 35 times and, you know, try to win the game with his arm. Um, that all being said, this is still likely a one-possession game going into the fourth quarter. Don't be mistaken. I don't think there's going to be a lot of separation between either of these teams throughout the quarter. Like it might be back and forth. We might see a lot of field goals, and we might not. We might see a lot of lead changes. But I see a one-possession game going into the fourth quarter, and that means you know a bounce of a football, a friendly spot by the refs, a boneheaded mistake, a drop, a flinch in a short short yarder situation, or a missed field goal. I mean, all of that could swing this one way or another. It really is going to be up for grabs but in a close game like I expect this to be it is going to hurt not having your head coach there to make either that gutsy call when you need it to go for it on fourth down or, or pull out a trick play or you know fake a field goal fake a punt um, or on the other side you know having that coach to know it 
have the wherewithal to dial it back and play through some adversity rather than trying to make up for it in one big gutsy call. And so even though I've been saying before that, you know, not having Jim Harbaugh on the sidelines isn't that impactful for Michigan because he doesn't call offensive or defensive plays, but in a tight game in the fourth quarter against your arch rival, that is where it would be helpful to have your experienced head coach. So for that reason, I'm rolling with Ohio State in this game. I trust Kyle McCord to make the plays he needs to make in the fourth quarter, and I trust Travion Henderson to take enough off of his shoulders where he doesn't have to make too many plays. I trust this offense, and I have a lot of question marks about Michigan's defensive, I mean, offensive line and how J.J. McCarthy will hold up. So for that reason, I'm going with Ohio State. Like I said, it should be a nail-biter down to the bitter end, but my final prediction is Ohio State walks into Ann Arbor and comes away with a 23-20 win. Believe it or not, other Big Ten teams do play this weekend. Uh, Nebraska, Illinois, and Minnesota all trying to earn a bowl appearance with their sixth win. Uh, Nebraska plays Iowa, Illinois plays Northwestern, and Minnesota plays Wisconsin, all of their opponents having already secured that bowl berth. Um, <clears throat> so to start with Nebraska versus Iowa, I think that's really interesting because, you know, Iowa doesn't really have much to play for in theory. Obviously, the Iowa-Nebraska is a great rivalry game, and 10 wins is a big milestone given the season that Iowa has had. So it's definitely not likely that they're glossing over this game, but it is hard to imagine them coming out with that same intensity um, after they've already accomplished the goal that they have set out for in the preseason. And I think that same thing goes with Northwestern. I mean, 7-5 and five certainly is a different feel than 6-6. Six and six guarantees a winning season and could set, could set them up for a bigger bowl game against maybe a power five opponent um, that could really help put Northwestern's name on on the map heading into the offseason. Um, but at the same time, they've accomplished their goal for the season. They're not in the Big Ten West contention, and they're going up against an Illinois team who is still, still playing their best football of the season despite what happened last weekend against um, Iowa. And <clears throat> I mean, this was a season that was once dead. I mean, they were they were sitting at two and four. It looks like bowl appearance was out the window, and you know they're a win away from accomplishing their goal. And then you know Nebraska when they play Iowa. I mean, it's no secret a bowl appearance is the goal that they set out for at the beginning of the season. It's not necessarily the floor of the expectations Nebraska had coming into the season, but I think getting to that bowl game and for the first time in eight years for Nebraska, um, I think would allow Husker fans to forgive a lot of what they've seen out of this team, especially offensively, just flat out bad football, bad quarterback play, bad coaching decisions by Marcus Satterfield. I think getting to that bowl game would kind of ease off the pressure heading into year two, especially for Marcus Satterfield, would allow Nebraska fans to be um, I guess be a little bit more forgiving with what they've seen um, put on the field on that side of the ball. And, you know, I've talked about teams getting positive momentum heading into the offseason for a few weeks now, and that, that applies to teams all over the spectrum, from three-win Purdue to a potential 10-win Penn State. I think a lot of, for a lot of these teams, it's about getting positive momentum heading into the offseason. It's a real thing, especially when you're trying to build a program. And so for that reason, I think this is probably the most important game of the season for Matt Rule in his first year. Um, so I expect them to play this game like it's their championship. So it's really a very interesting dynamic for all four of those teams, Nebraska, Iowa, and Illinois Northwestern. Um, at face value, these games certainly aren't great. They're certainly not very interesting. But when you think about what a win would mean for each of those teams, it does become very interesting. Um, I think Iowa-Nebraska is a really fun game to have on Black Friday. It kicks off at noon. You know, we shouldn't really have many plans going on that Friday. So sit back, crack open a beer, watch two great defenses, a great environment in Lincoln, 
a really great rivalry and one that's been underrated. The past five matchups have all been decided by one possession games that have actually been decided in the final seconds of the game, and I expect this one to go the, to go the same. So, I mean, maybe you can um, wait to tune in for the second half if you really are, are scared of watching defensive Big Ten football, but that should be a great game down to the very end. Illinois versus Northwestern, that won't quite have the same environment, but the battle for the Land of Lincoln Trophy is um, has given us some great matchups in the past. I wouldn't be surprised if this ends up turning into a shootout um, with both defenses. I mean, Northwestern's defense has definitely risen to the occasion over the past few weeks, but I think that back end is susceptible against John Paddock in a very versatile passing offense, and Illinois is a week, two weeks away removed from giving up 45 points to Indiana, so anything is possible in that game. And then there's Minnesota versus Wisconsin. Touched on it before. I mean, these are two teams who, no matter the outcome this weekend, um, I think both fan bases will largely be disappointed by their seasons, um, no matter how it ends. So I'm certainly a little less excited about these two, these, this game than the other two, because I mean, neither of these teams are fielding exceptionally great defenses or offenses, but a win for Paul Bunyan's axe would mean a lot for both schools. And I touched on it before Wisconsin. I mean, being able to say you went eight and five this year after how the outlook was last week, um, would go a long way for building this program for Luke Fickle and, and getting some of that momentum again, heading into year two and then for pj fleck i feel like he really needs a win to stay off the hot seat i mean i already kind of have him on there and i know minnesota fans are kind of divided some people still well you know stick by his side with what for what he's done for this program over the past few years brought him to to new heights that we really haven't seen them hit so far this century um but other fans are starting to get sick of it and it's just like you know you weren't able to win the big 10 west you know perennially the most mediocre division in all of college football and they haven't been able to win it once um before pj fleck or with him despite some of the great teams he's fielded and missing out on a bowl game I feel like might be the last straw for a lot of Minnesota fans so I d- certainly wouldn't expect him to get fired even if they lose by 50 to Wisconsin but I feel like they, he really needs a win and a postseason appearance to kind of stay off that hot seat so still plenty to play for for both teams so obviously Ohio State versus Michigan steals all the headlines this weekend and for good reason and on face value doesn't appear to be any great matchups outside of that but a closer look proves otherwise I think Nebraska Illinois I mean sorry Nebraska Iowa Illinois Northwestern and Minnesota Wisconsin should all be close games both have a lot um, riding for all six teams um, and I just love you know I think at the end of the season those teams battling for that sixth win battling to have one more opportunity to play this season um, can always bring some some really exciting football so excited for those matchups as well and with that we can dive right into my five big 10 betting locks for week 13 of the college football season or the big 10 season our last week of the regular season so this is going to be the last time we do the five big 10 locks from here on out i'll probably have to go outside the big 10 for my locks but uh for two of them i'm going to stick with the ohio state michigan game i picked ohio state to win the game i'm not abundantly confident in that i'm not going to be you know max betting um you know the ohio state money line by any means but they are still sitting at a four point underdog i thought after last weekend it'd come down more closer to a field goal um because it's it has varied a lot throughout the season um for a good portion of the year michigan was closer to a seven point favorite it's been around five the past couple weeks it's sitting at four doesn't think doesn't appear to be moving much more but as long as i'm if at four or above i love ohio state to cover because like i said i think this is going to be a tight game i wouldn't be surprised if you know ohio state gets the ball 
you know, with a, you know, three, four, five, six minutes left in the fourth quarter with an opportunity to go take the lead. And, you know, what would be just a surprise, wouldn't be surprised at all if they do go down and convert that for the win. Wouldn't be surprised at all if they're not able to against a great defense. So I think this is a one possession game either way. So as long as the line is at four or above, um, I'm going to go roll with Ohio State to cover. Um, and with that, I'm also like the over-under in this game. It's sitting at 46 and a half, which is the same over-under that Ohio State-Penn State was. That over that under hit confidently. And I know the past few games, I mean, the past couple games with these teams, Ohio State's given up a lot of chunk plays against Michigan, and they've put up 40-plus each of the past two games. I do not think that's happening this time. Ohio State's defense is head and shoulders above what they fielded the past two seasons. And this Michigan offense, I probably think it's honestly their worst unit out of compared to the past two years as well. Um, both defenses are great. I think, like I said, this is a hard-fought battle. I said 23-20 was my projected final score, and honestly, the more I think about it, I feel like I might be wavering on the high end there. So at 46 and a half, I'm definitely taking that under. I mean, you have two great defenses and two offenses that I have struggled at some points in the season. Michigan really hasn't been tested that much, but I mean, I don't, I don't know what teams really, what people really saw from this Michigan offense against Penn State that thinks they are able to go into this game against Ohio State and, and put up 30 on them. I don't see that happening. So I think this is a low scoring game from both sides. Under 46 and a half, I'm going to take that all day. My third lock is going to be from one of the games I just talked about, Northwestern against Illinois. Northwestern is somehow a six and a half point favorite against Illinois. Northwestern this year is seven and four against the spread, but a lot of those losses came earlier in the season when they were getting the break breaks beaten off of them. They've really turned things around. And this game, the spread started closer to a pick em. I think Northwestern was a one-point underdog originally, and it just has continued to slide in Illinois' favor. And so, again, again, Northwestern doesn't have quite as much to play for in this game. It's going to be on the road, Illinois playing for a bowl game, salvaging their season. So I, I totally understand Illinois being the favorite. If I had to pick a winner, I'm probably going to lean towards North Illinois, assuming they, they stick with John Paddock at quarterback. But, you know, the public has routinely bet against Northwestern, probably because just of the name Northwestern and the assumptions uh, that they're not very good. Um, but they, the public has routinely lost when they've bet against Northwestern. Um, you know, like I said, John Paddock should start again, and he's going to make this a tough offense to stop for, um, for Illinois. But at the same time, Paddock seems like he kind of lost all his momentum from the previous two games, and the run game is still as poor as it's been from the beginning of the season. I'm not that confident in Paddock's arm now that the kind of the, the glimmer has worn off a little bit from his trial triumphant burst onto the scene. And let's not forget that Northwestern has physically beaten up and really just dominated the past two opponents in Wisconsin and Purdue. So Illinois, like I said before, is a week away from giving up 45 points to Indiana. Um, you know, nothing about this game screams to me, Illinois wins handedly. And that's what the six and a half point spread is telling me. And so it's probably a tight game. Again, down to the final minutes, I could see either team winning, but I am very confident that Illinois is not a full touchdown better than Northwestern. I, you know, Northwestern's been very kind against the spread the past few weeks. I'm going to go roll with them again. Take Northwestern plus six and a half. If you're feeling bold, take the money line. It's going to be great odds. But if you're feeling safe, I'm very confident Northwestern at the very least keeps this game within a touchdown. 
And my fourth lock will come out of the state of Indiana, where another very underrated rivalry is taking place. Purdue hosting Indiana. Uh, the Boilermakers are two and a half point favorites. And the key here is Hudson Card. He's expected to play after missing last week against Northwestern. I didn't even know that Hudson Card was dealing with an injury until Ryan Walters said he was out leading up to that game. Uh, so if he does play, I really like the Boilermakers to take this game. ross Stadium has been, I think, one of the more underrated environments in the Big Ten this year. I mean, they came out strong against Minnesota when uh, they were already out of bowl eligibility. So I, I think they are certain to come in strong against their rivals and have an impact on this game. I really like Brendan Sorsby for Indiana. Um, I think he can make some plays to keep them in it, but I've really lost faith in this Indiana defense. I'm sick of hanging my hat on their good moments, their flashes where they play really well, where their defensive front really wreaks havoc, because at this point in the season, they have not showed up to games far more often than they have showed up to games, and I cannot expect them to play their best in this particular game i mean i mean this has honestly me picking purdue in this game has more to so to do with these coaching staffs and the trajectory of their respective programs than what i'm seeing on the field because you know indiana seems to be hitting a new low under tom allen it looked like they were kind of getting things together a couple weeks ago um they were right in that game with illinois if they had won that game who knows maybe they're playing for bowl eligibility right now um but now again they're sitting as a three-win team and an underdog to their rival and indiana is going to have to really make some seriously hard decisions about Tom Allen's future this offseason because if they do let him go, it'll come with a hefty buyout. I'm not sure if that's an investment Indiana really wants to make, especially considering who exactly do you hire at this junction. Ryan Walters, on the other hand, you know, despite this certainly being a down year considering what expectations were heading into this season, uh, he still has me believing in this team and the trajectory of the program. I'm sure he knows how much a win here would mean for his program. He wants to go out on a high note. He wants to beat their rival. He's going to have that home crowd behind him and like i said he is looking for that um that positive momentum as he enters a pivotal second season so i think purdue finds a way to win as long as this um line stays at a field goal or less i'm going to take uh purdue to cover and my fifth and final big 10 betting lock of the 2023 regular season man it is it is very sad saying those words um but for my fifth and final big 10 lock of the season i'm going to stick with all reliable i am kicking myself for going against this last week for the first time in years I'm going to go with the old Iowa under 27 and a half against Nebraska ties the record that they set a couple weeks ago for the lowest over under in the history of college football and um you know, I just look at these two teams and it's just going to be smash mouth football. It's going to be exactly what we've seen out of both of these squads the past couple seasons. I mean, the past couple weeks. And it's just, this is a case of not wanting to overthink it. Um, you know, Iowa's defense looked just as good without Cooper to Gene, surprisingly. And yeah, they might be a little more susceptible in that back end, but Nebraska is the last team in the entire Big Ten that is going to challenge uh, a team secondary. And, you know, Trevor Purdy, he played better. Um, you know, had a couple great drives to kick things off, but really did not do much at all offensively um, after those first two drives against Wisconsin. So, you know, it's going to be loud. It's going to be hard to move the ball. Both great defenses, both great in the trenches. And just like, you know, this is a, a 16-13 game max. And that will, I mean, shockingly, that would take the over. So I take that back. Let's call it a 13-10 game. It just, you know, when in doubt, go with the Iowa under. That's what I that's what I like to say. So no I haven't seen a reason from either of these teams to think that they can put up many points. It's going to be a good old-fashioned slugfest like we're used to with both of these teams. My fifth final lock, Iowa under 27 and a half. 
And that will do it for the week 13 edition of the Floor Slap College Football Podcast. I've been your host, Sean. Really appreciate you hanging in there with me this whole episode and really all season long. It's been a heck of a year in the Big Ten, heck of a year for college football. We are far from over. We got championship weekend coming up and then a whole slew of bowl games, the college football playoff, where almost certainly we will have a Big Ten team. So podcast isn't going anywhere. We will see you here next week, but we do bid farewell to the college football regular season. It's been a great one. Like I said, do not take the great things in life for granted because they will go away in time. So kick back, relax, have a happy Thanksgiving, enjoy time with your friends and family. I hope you get plenty of time to sit back on the couch and, you know, watch some football, watch some, you know, not only college, but NFL. Just this is a perfect weekend to sit back and do nothing. I hope you reward yourselves and I will catch you here next week for another episode of the Floor Slap Podcast. Stay safe and happy Thanksgiving.